0: You're going to love this. Just love it. in the middle with you from pacifica radios kpfk in los angeles this is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 fm in la 91.7 fm kyaq on the oregon central coast coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org on the stitcher app the TuneIn app on itunes On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Five Days a Week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. We talk a lot about uh, presidential elections on this program. We talk a lot about uh, elections in general on this program. Of late, obviously, we've been focusing on the presidential race. We are now just days away. Days away. Can you feel the excitement? Uh, Days away from the first presidential (laughs) debate of the 2016 presidential season, wherein Fox News is prepared to choose ten, just ten, not 11, not 9, 12 is right out, uh, 10 candidates from the uh, uh, pool of Republicans that are running to appear on their debate stage uh, in prime time in just uh, just days from now. And uh, the criteria for how they are choosing those uh, candidates is a complete secret, is completely unknown. It seems to be just uh, Roger Ailes who who used to uh, run the Nixon administration. Now he runs the Fox News administration. Uh, It seems to be pretty much Roger Ailes just chooses whoever he wants. But um, anyway, that's coming up, and you know, obviously, we we take a a, a, we we've been looking very closely at the entire race. And not only because Donald Trump is uh, leading the pack incredibly with no sign of him dropping out, which makes it really fun for me on the Democratic side. And, of course, on the uh, I'm sorry, on the Republican side and over on the Democratic side, uh, you've got an insurgent candidate in Bernie Sanders running against Hillary Clinton also makes it an entertaining uh, horse race, so to speak. But if all uh, all of the horse races aside, if voters can't vote, if voters aren't allowed to vote, and then of those voters who are allowed to vote, if those votes aren't counted, counted accurately, and counted in a way that the voters can know they are counted accurately, well, so much for democracy. So we cover that aspect quite a bit since uh, everyone else covers the horse race. Very few people cover what the horses leave behind on the track that they are running on. Even the best horses, if they run on a muddy track, are likely to uh, are likely to lose six ways that hackers could disrupt. The 2016 elections. That's the uh, headline from Michael Gregg of uh, Superior Solutions. He is a private uh, private security consultant down in uh, based out of Houston. And he wrote an article recently at Huffington Post about those concerns, about the ways that hackers could disrupt elections. And we talk about that a lot on this uh, program when it comes to voting machines but Michael Gregg has a few other ideas, a few other concerns. Yes, he's concerned about the voting machines as well, but he has uh, some other ways that uh, hackers could disrupt the 2016 election. So, uh, so if you're a hacker, you might want to stay tuned because we'll give you a whole bunch of fresh new ideas. That's uh, that's that's coming up in a bit, and uh, and much more. And you know, well. Well, I'll just let Michael Gregg talk about it uh, because, I, I, you know, I'm glad to talk to him. I will. I'm looking forward to talking to him because, you know, we've talked over the years to a lot of computer security experts, to a lot of voting machine experts, people who look specifically at voting machines, um, you know, either for a living, for for the state, they're testing for the state or for the federal government, uh, they're advocates for one way or another. So it'll be interesting to speak with Michael Gregg, who's a who's a private consultant, a private I.T. consultant. I don't know if he has a, a, a political dog in this particular hunt, but I've never talked to him before. And, uh, and I haven't actually seen him write on uh, voting systems before. So this will be an interesting conversation. OK, uh, a bit of breaking news and a few updates on a few stories that we have been covering before we get to Michael Gregg. Uh, Dylan Roth, the suspect in last month's mass shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, has pleaded guilty. I'm sorry, has pleaded not guilty. Correction. I, unlike the New York Times, I'm issuing an immediate correction. I got the story wrong. He pleaded not guilty in U.S. District Court on Friday. The uh, 21-year-old faces 33 federal criminal charges for the June 17 attack on nine parishioners at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church following his July 22nd indictment on those charges. He was charged with 12 counts under hate crime laws, another 12 under civil rights provisions, and nine for using a firearm for murder. Roth additionally faces 13 state charges relating to murder, attempted murder, and firearms crimes. We've been talking a lot on this program over the last couple of weeks about the, uh, w- you know, when he was charged with hate crimes but not terrorism-related crimes. And, and sort of how it, it, it almost seems, well, you could say in one sense random who is chosen uh, to be charged with terrorism crimes uh, versus hate crimes versus any other crimes. Or maybe not so random as uh, a former FBI special agent Colleen Rowley told us a few days ago where it seems that now, uh, you know, terrorism charges are kept solely exclusively for those with the Middle Eastern background. For uh, Islamic related terrorism. Um, But I want to but but his uh, his uh, Dylan Roth's plea today raises one other point that I want to bring up just just for a moment, because it's another topic we've talked about quite a bit on this show. According to the Charleston Post and Courier, Roth had wanted to plead guilty to the hate crimes charges. But his attorneys would not allow him, would not advise him to do so on those particular counts since the federal government is undecided on whether it is seeking the death penalty for those counts. Those particular charges could lead to, uh, to, to his execution. And because of that, the attorneys uh, told him, nope, don't plead, uh, don't plead guilty. And so because he's not pleading guilty, uh, he can uh, change his plea at a later date. But because he's not pleading guilty, right now it becomes a, a bargaining chip, basically. And instead of pleading guilty to those charges, moving ahead, not having to have a, you know a, a, this this full lengthy trial, we're going to have a full lengthy trial and it's going to cost a lot more money. So those people who call themselves conservative out there, who still haven't figured out That the death penalty, that putting someone to death costs uh, at least 10 times more than keeping them in prison for the rest of their lives without parole. Those people who haven't figured it out need to start paying attention. And in this case, this death penalty option gives uh, Roth a bargaining chip that he may use as a later date. Uh, we'll see what happens if federal prosecutors decide whether to pursue uh, the death uh, the death penalty or not, but that's where it stands at this point.
1: And do remember that when there is a death penalty uh, judgment that is passed down, then there are years and years, often decades of appeals afterwards as it goes through the entire appeals process, which is also very expensive. Very
0: expensive, and those are mandatory appeals. So even if even if at that point he doesn't wish to uh, uh, you know contest the uh, the verdict, the appeals are mandatory in a death sentence, uh, death penalty case. So, uh, okay, that's where that stands at this point. Uh, that was Desi Doyen, by by the way. Hey, Desi Doyen, hey. Uh, our producer here, and my co-host on the Green News Report. Desi, there's one uh, story. I wanted to do a quick update on this on uh, Portland. We covered it yesterday in our Green News Report. the uh, The activists in Portland who are suspending themselves from a bridge to block the icebreaker the Shell oil icebreaker that had come back from the Arctic to get repairs. It had like a three-foot hole in its hull. It had to get repairs. It took 12 days for it to come down. It has a very important piece of equipment on uh, on board on that ship that disallows Shell from beginning to drill in the Arctic. Do I understand that story correctly? Yes, yes,
1: you do. It's an icebreaker ship, and it contains some oil spill response equipment, a capping stack that would help to stop... Uh, a blowout like the kind that happened in the Gulf of Mexico with the BP oil spill. The permit that Shell has been given from the Obama administration limits them. They are unable to even begin drilling until that ship is on site. And as you say, it just actually left Portland. Uh, The activists were able to delay it for about 40 hours.
0: And the activists, what they did was fantastic. They suspended themselves below this bridge that the boat had to, the ship had to pass through to get back right. up the Willamette River and back out to the ocean. These guys were suspended there from Greenpeace, I believe, yes. right, uh, so that the the ship could not pass without hitting one of these people unless uh, authorities figured out how to get these suspended right. people out of the way. Right, and uh, the ship came out and was was. There gonna, was a
1: showdown. There it was literally- a showdown.
0: The ship had to turn around and go back, and then Shell went to court. Got an order to, the, for the uh, Greenpeace. You know, had to move, or they would be fined. And of course, they didn't move. And then the boat came back out. And what happened late yesterday, I believe it was. The
1: police actually began the process. You know, the the search and rescue teams that are skilled in these matters. Uh, they actually went out and started removing the protesters. Uh, they were able to get three, the ones that were in the crucial position. And by getting them out of the way, uh, the the ship, the Fenica, was actually able to pass through under the bridge. And it is now on its way. On its Arctic. way,
0: another 12-day journey. I I presume, back to the Arctic, unless there is another delay along the way. This has been a comedy of errors for Shell every attempt to drill up in the otherwise pristine waters of the Arctic, which environmentalists are against in a huge way, not just because of the dangers that it poses. But environmentalists, at this point, they've had it, right? With fossil fuels, they want no new uh, fossil fuel ventures, essentially. Well, it's
1: simple math. You know, we only have so much of uh, we have we have so much in reserves in uh, uh, carbon emissions that are locked up in gas and oil and coal. And the more we burn, the worse climate change is going to be. So by continuing to search for and develop new reserves that then will be also released and burned and released into the atmosphere, we are digging the hole even deeper. And already, as we've discussed with previous interviews with uh, David Roberts, the environmental journalist and with, you know, climate scientist Michael Mann, we are already in a really deep hole. And getting more fossil fuels developed is going to be a really bad idea. Not to mention, as you said, that the Arctic is extremely fragile and extremely harsh and any oil spill that will happen up there and that will be inevitable the projections are already part of uh, of uh, the united states uh, projections of what's going to happen up there they said that there is the 100 percent chance of an oil spill in the arctic in the next uh 50 years
0: and 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 the coast guard of course you know for those people you mentioned the uh, fossil fuel the carbon emissions from that of course that's only for people like you who believe that the globe is warming
1: who so accept the science yes
0: Oh, yeah. Who believe in science and stuff like that. Uh, I've got uh, Twitter uh, trolls uh, who tell me otherwise, who tell me the Earth is actually turning colder and they have evidence (laughs) of this. And uh, I tried to get to this a few days ago and I wasn't able to. So maybe I'm hoping this time later in the show I can do it. We can uh, take a a bit of a dive into uh, the uh, land of deep Twitter trollage. Uh, and you control me on Twitter by the way anytime I am the Brad blog over on the Twitters and it should be noted by the way if something does go wrong up there in the Arctic the uh, the Coast Guard you know before giving permission before the Obama administration gave permission and and it's insane that they did this but before they gave permission the Coast Guard has testified in Congress for years we don't have anybody up there to help if something goes wrong we are not there to help. You know they were right there in the uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the BP oil spill, and they still couldn't get that thing capped for uh, months, three months, right? Yep. And now they are the nearest Coast Guard station. I think is like a thousand miles away up right. in the Arctic. If yes. anything goes wrong, <sighs> seems like madness to me. But what do I know? Okay, one more uh, quick item here before we get to uh, get to a break and come back with Michael Gregg on how to hack uh, next year's elections. Uh, we were talking about this uh, terrible story that the New York Times got completely wrong, completely and entirely wrong, a few days ago, claiming that Hillary Clinton was, uh, th- that uh, inspector generals uh, had sought a criminal probe against Hillary Clinton for the way she handled her email when she was Secretary of State. As it turns out, it was not actually a criminal probe. It wasn't a criminal probe at all. It wasn't a probe of Hillary Clinton at all. It was completely wrong. The New York Times got it completely wrong. And then to make matters worse, they tried to sneak in their corrections. They didn't announce their corrections. And then to make matters worse and worse, they have since come out and said, well, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. It's just because uh, our sources uh, told us something that was wrong. And all we did was report those sources, those unnamed sources who they have still not disclosed. As I spoke with uh, Eric Bollert yesterday, who follows this stuff very closely from Media Matters, this would never happen. It never does happen against Republicans. Here's what he had to say, uh, part of uh, my conversation with Eric Bollert yesterday on this.
2: And, and who's the target always? Hmm. Right. Is it ever Jeb Bush? Is it ever the RNC? Is it ever the NRA? No. Well, that's what I wanted it's to ask. always al- progressive. Well, it's that's- always Democrats. It's always a Clinton. It's always an Obama. It's always a low-income advocacy group. Where are these colossal screw-ups when the New York Times digs in deep and screws up about a Mm right-wing Republican organization? It doesn't happen because they know you cannot make mistakes when you go after the NRA. You cannot make mistakes when you go after a Republican front-runner.
0: But you can, apparently, when it comes to Democrats, when it comes to uh, uh, the Iraq War and those uh, people who were marginalized, who are against the Iraq War, when it comes to a 40-year-old community organization like ACORN, uh, you know, that has the temerity to register millions of low and middle Americans to vote and to participate in their democracy. That's just fine. And uh, well, it's not. Let me put it this way: It is not getting any better at the New York Times. The uh, the Clinton campaign wrote a a nearly two thousand word response to this fiasco a few days ago, and the Times declined to print their uh, their response. Just amazing, you know. They couldn't even put it up on their website. I mean, pixels cost nothing. You know, much less than you know, not putting it in the paper. They should have put so it's just one comedy of error after another in this case. Uh, It's disgraceful the way the New York Times has done this. And again, I ain't no fan of Hillary Clinton. I ain't no fan of Bill Clinton's, but I am a fan of fairness. I am a fan of getting it right. I am a fair. I am in favor of an informed electorate. So the electorate can know what the hell is going on. And when it's the paper of record making these mistakes and not copping to these mistakes, the paper of record, the one that history relies on, the one that all of the other newspapers in this country rely on, when they can't even get it right, which is understandable, that's one thing. But when they screw up the correction, that's another. Josh Marshall wrote uh, on this today. He says, It is a really good object lesson on how much more wildly the times gets played by Republicans than it ever does by Democrats. News organizations botch stories. It happens. But the Times' behavior in this case has, frankly, been baffling. It is untenable to get a story this wrong on such a consequential issue and remain steadfast that your reporters and editors did nothing wrong. I don't mean felony wrong, he says, like someone has to be fired or hung out to dry, but you simply can't say you made no errors. If you relied on trusted sources and they got it wrong... So it's their fault. Well, yes, your trust, at least, was partially misplaced. Again, that's by friggin' definition, says Josh Marshall. You placed your trust in the wrong people. He adds, the time has a checkered past, reporting on the Clintons, to put it generously. If this had been about a Republican campaign, there would have already been some sort of internal probe or review at a minimum. Oh, you think? Yeah, The Times has a problem covering the Clintons. There's no getting around that conclusion. he He says it's a longstanding problem. It's institutional. I'm really baffled as to why they simply can't come clean on this one. I would join him in being baffled there, but I wasn't uh, I couldn't understand why they couldn't come clean on uh, on the acorn pimp hoax story by right-wingers Andrew Breitbart and James O'Keefe and why it took me 6 months at bradblog.com just to get them to finally to finally correct some of those errors. I you know, there's something wrong, something institutionally wrong at the New York Times. They need to be called out on it. And yeah, had it been had, they, had this been a Jeb Bush, had they said that Jeb Bush was facing a criminal investigation, people heads would have rolled by now. Just ask uh, Dan Rather over at CBS News, who didn't get his story wrong about George W. Bush in 2004, but he got fired anyway. All right. Speaking of things you need to know before the 2016 election, a quick break and we're back with Michael Gregg of Superior Superior Solutions on at least six ways that hackers could disrupt. The 2016 elections. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and Bradblog.com with a donation it's easy stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar you can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like it's easy it'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone got it Thanks. Stop by Bradblog.com/slash donate to help us out today. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com here with you. We often talk on this program about hacked. Systems. Uh, We've uh, talked about the recent hacks to government uh, websites, government data systems that have exposed uh, the private information of millions of federal workers. Hacks of supposedly hardened systems like the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon. Uh, just this week, hacks at uh, at Planned Parenthood, which exposed a whole bunch of data. Planned Parenthood, uh, an organization that has had security threats against them for decades, and yet their systems apparently weren't hard enough to hold off uh, uh, people who wanted to access that system. And generally, when I point out those hacks... Uh, it's because it's it's by way of saying, hey, even the most hardened, most theoretically secure systems in the world are not able to hold off uh, determined hackers who want to get into these systems. And I point that out because. I know what uh, what our electoral system is like. We have been reporting for, uh, on it for years, both here on the Bradcast and at Bradblog.com, on the vulnerability of voting systems, whether they're touchscreen uh, voting systems, which are 100% unverifiable, or whether they're optical scan, uh, paper-based systems, which, uh, well, actually, those can be verified. Those votes can be verified if uh, you know human beings bother to count those ballots, but they don't. They run them through optical scan systems, trust whatever it is the computer says, and then if anybody has any questions about it, it is very, very difficult to read what those ballots, you know, to actually get a look at both the ballots and the voting systems, which are proprietary systems, and in many states now they're making the ballots themselves no longer public records that people can look at. So it is very difficult to oversee our elections on these electronic voting systems and To make matters worse, there are a whole bunch of folks out there, I like to call them profiteers, who would like to move the entire system to Internet voting. And if you think it's difficult for the CIA and the FBI and the Pentagon uh, to protect their computer assets, imagine what it's like for the uh, tiny county election clerk uh, to, to hold off such attacks. That's one of the reasons why I talk about hacking so often on this show. Well... Recently, Michael Gregg of the uh, private IT security firm Superior Solutions wrote about some of these very threats and about a number of others in an article at Huffington Post headlined Top Six Ways Hackers Could Disrupt an Election. Michael brought up uh, quite a few uh, points, quite a few security concerns that I haven't really, in truth, uh, given much thought to. And I want to go through some of those as well as ask him some questions um, about the ones that I have given a lot of thoughts uh, thought to. Michael Gregg uh, joins us right now. He is the uh, COO of Superior Solutions, a private firm offering IT security services. They're based out of Houston. He has testified before the U.S. Congress on privacy and security breaches and also before the Missouri State Attorney General's Committee on Cybercrime and Hacking. He's offer- authored or co-authored more than 15 books related to the topic. He joins us now. Michael Gregg, sir, welcome to the broadcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, great to have you here. Okay, I've got, uh, as I said, uh, you know, we have been covering, as a matter of fact, your article cites a number of uh, hacks that we have reported on at bradblog.com and not just reported on but actually been involved in. For example, you cite the Argonne National Laboratory Their security review of a review of electronic voting machines in 2012, uh, which uh, found basically that some of these machines or many of these uh, voting systems can be remotely controlled uh, with about thirty dollars worth of parts from Radio Shack uh, to flip an election. Uh, to change votes without uh, the voter being any the wiser. That was actually a voting system that I helped supply to Argonne National Lab for their studies. Uh, an earlier one years ago at Princeton, a Diebold, optical, uh, a Diebold uh, touchscreen system uh, was also found easily hackable. So we've covered a lot of these, and I want to get into some specifics about these, but you covered six, uh, six in total, six uh, threats to our elections. So for, for the minute, For the moment, let's skip the number one threat you list as hacking a voting machine and move down to some of these others. And then we'll come back to the voting systems themselves. Number two, you say shut down the voting system or election agencies. What do you mean by that? And how could hackers shut down an entire system or uh, an agency?
2: Well, the scary part about this is that one is actually probably one of the easiest. Mm -hmm. And if for an example... Uh, uh, some of your listeners may remember back, for example, when they'd cut off funding to WikiLeaks mm-hmm. uh, from uh, MasterCard and PayPal that actually anonymous hackers and LulzSec, these other guys, actually encouraged their users just to pull down this package called LOIC, Low Orbit Eye and Cannon, mm-hmm. and actually use that to launch these massive denial-of-service attacks against MasterCard and Visa They were able to pull them offline. Mm -hmm. So generally, these denial-of-service attacks are one of the easiest to pull off because they simply flood these sites or uh, these particular IP addresses with so much traffic that the legitimate traffic can't go through. It couldn't process the votes. couldn't process the information.
0: And when it comes to elections, uh, election agencies, I guess, you know, county clerks, offices, and so forth, what would be the specific threat? What would it be that this denial-of-service attack, uh, what type of systems would they try to shut down? You're not talking about just the voting system. You're talking about, what, voter registration computers and all of that?
2: Voter registration. They could go through there and go after voter registration. They Mm -hmm. might even potentially try to go in and change results so they— change voters, voter registration records. Maybe they mark on there that you were a felon, so you're not eligible to vote now. So people likely go in and then when they try to vote, they can't. So there's many different ways they could try to do this. They could change these records, manipulate them in some way. And with all this stuff electronic, it's very hard to tell sometimes if the information's been changed or not. And it's a huge nightmare to, try to get that fixed.
0: And that would be on election day. Not only might they make some uh, uh, voters ineligible, marking them as a felon, or even removing them entirely from the system, but if they just log jammed the system with a, uh, a denial of service attack, uh, many of these uh, uh, precincts now, which rely on computerized uh, registration rolls, they wouldn't be able to check whether anybody was registered on election day. And nobody would be able to vote that day at all, if I understand this correctly.
2: You got it. And it might be that they don't target all areas, and they may only target specific ones. So maybe they try to hurt or help one candidate uh, specifically. Because if you look in the past, we've had these really close elections. Remember, like, back around, what was it, 2000, with uh, Bush and Gore? Mm -hmm. So if they even targeted specific ones... And they can tilt this just a little bit one way or the other. They can literally change an election.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't even go back as far as 2000. Uh, we can go to 2004, what happened in Ohio, and and many other elections around yeah. the country, in truth. Uh, all right, uh, number three here, delete or change election records. Is that part of the same, uh, uh, the, the same idea, the attack on uh, registration records and so forth?
2: Exactly. And in this case, this could have been done some period ahead of time where there actually is hacked in or made subtle changes to these records. Uh, they show you're not eligible to vote in that in that area or Are they, they show that you're actually registered in another area. So you get ready and you again show up to vote at the last minute and then they tell you they can't. You can't vote that you're not eligible, you know, you just can't do it. It's just be very effective also against, like, primaries.
0: Yeah, and we have seen, uh, well, you know, I have seen people be concerned about that around the country where uh, in, in you know, past years where we see a spate of people who, who know for certain that they were registered, but all of a sudden on Election Day they showed up and by golly, they didn't show up in the records after all for some odd reason. Do you have any evidence that a, that an attack like this has ever been carried out around the country where uh, uh, voter registrations have been manipulated prior to an election?
2: I don't have any evidence of that, but it could very well be that attackers could potentially get in and do these things and then not say anything about it mm-hmm. and it you know it, it would be very hard to prove. And then the scary part is, by the time any of this was worked out, the election's over with, so it's too yep, late.
0: That's exactly right. Okay, number four, hijack a candidate's website. This is one I had not uh, thought about as a threat, but why don't you explain what, what the concern would be there?
2: Sure, in this case, a lot of these folks that set up these uh, sites, you know, they're really kind of more concerned about getting out their message, uh, raising funds. It may not always be the security of the site itself. So they could potentially change the site. They might uh, extract information off the site. They could potentially steal all the credit card information of the donors Mm -hmm. and then run up charges on their credit card bills. They could uh, deface the site. So every time you try to go to the candidate's site, you see something else or they've redirected you over somewhere else. Do things like DNS cash poisoning, so they point you to other websites. They could put a political message up there. They have some other type of political message. They could potentially redirect you to a terrorist page, you know, ISIS or ISO, many different things they could do to either just disrupt them or just to cause them trouble.
0: Uh, Michael Gregg, uh, COO of Superior Solutions, a uh, private IT security firm. Have you looked at some of these uh, candidate websites to to determine uh, their vulnerabilities and how, like, you know, I said at the top of this segment, obviously, that you can't get, you know, even the Pentagon and the White House and, and so forth uh, can't seem to uh, hold off attacks. But have you looked at some of these candidate websites? Do they have any uh, sense of security at all on these systems or are these sort of uh, homespun websites, many of them, that uh, don't take security concerns uh, to heart at all?
2: Well, what's actually interesting is it kind of varies. Some of them, for example, if you go to the website and you go to each page, you'll see every page is HTTPS. So every page has security or encryption built in. On some candidate sites, the entire site may be HTTP, and only the site where they do donations Mm -hmm. is actually HTTPS or secured. And then even on those sites, the level of security built into that encryption or security through SSL can vary. There's actually sites out there like Qualsys has one where you can point at a URL and it'll run a security check on it and it'll say, yes, they have SSL, but in this case, they're given a D because (laughs) it's a very weak form of encryption. It's Mm -hmm. not really sufficient to be used today.
0: Gotcha. All right, let's move on to number five, doxing a candidate uh explain to people who don't understand what doxing is uh and how this could uh disrupt an election in some fashion
2: yeah you gotta love with hackers because they always come up with these terms or (laughs) other words you probably haven't heard before Mm -hmm. so it's really just like mudslinging you're just taking that to a whole new level because what you're doing is releasing information or documents photos other types of information they might have on their phone or other types of data that they didn't want publicly released think of it in much the same way earlier this year when we looked at uh, hollywood actors and actresses having nude photos and other things actually released out they just go through they find this information about the individual, if anything's on there. And it could even be something that's been taken out of context. Mm-hmm. And then they start amplifying and putting that out there. And then people get a different perception of the candidate, and then, you know, it's too late, it's over.
0: And and I guess we saw a form of this back in uh, uh, 2008 when I think it was Sarah Palin's emails were hacked back then. Uh, I guess, is that what you mean? Is that a form of doxing a candidate and they were release uh, that, uh, that information, release that uh, data to the world?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In that case, he'd gone through there and got all her emails and posted them on the web and said, "Hey, here's all this stuff about her. You know, maybe she's not who she claims to be." So exactly.
0: Okay. Finally, before we go back to the voting machines themselves, uh, number six here: target campaign donors. Uh, how would hackers uh, target campaign donors specifically?
2: Well, a couple of different ways. One, they might, depending on how that website's been set up they could start to look who goes to specific websites and who searches for specific things. Are they pro-abortion? Are they anti-abortion? And then they might come back and say, we're going to tell other people, uh, you know, that this this is what you like or what you don't like. They might also potentially use SQL injection or other techniques and then get the credit card and donation information and then, threaten to use that against people. Uh, we're going to now run up charges on your credit card. Mm-hmm. We're going to release information about you.
0: I see. So in other words, you're talking about specific donors to camp, finding out who those donors are, and then essentially doxing them the way uh, you were talking about the potential to dox uh, a candidate, uh, essentially. Exactly.
2: Or, or the other part is that you uh, then target them for financial fraud, you go after their credit cards, their financial information, and you just kind of go out, kind of like we've seen with some of the Ashley Madison or other ones, and you tell other people, if we see that you donate to these candidates, we're going to do the same with you. So you try to scare people off from donating.
0: Well, okay. the, uh, the good news, Michael, is we're not allowed to know who donates to anybody anymore. <laughs> so uh, these guys are not a, th- a threat, so nobody will ever know. Um, okay, so let's go back now to the uh, hack a voting machine. Um, well let me let me just get your thoughts on this we we covered we covered this issue a lot uh... we recently covered the, this new study about uh... the systems in virginia the touchscreen systems which were finally immediately pulled offline because they were so bad uh... you know you had these hard-coded passwords in them that were you know a b c d e uh... or admin i mean just ridiculous uh, security on these systems which by the way We had been warning about here and on bradblog.com for years about those very systems. So finally they decided to notice the problems with them. Um, But the rest of the systems that are still being used across the country uh, are virtually as vulnerable, at least when I talk to uh, computer security experts or read the studies that were done by the state of California or the state of Ohio. What is your reading on the, the current uh, voting system, whether it's touchscreen or optical scans that are used across the country at this point.
2: Well, these things really, really worry me because one, it's very hard to go back later and really see who made that particular vote or how individuals voted. That data on that particular box, or really what you could think of as a computer, could have been changed in many different ways. The attacker could either be an insider and get physical access to that machine, mm-hmm. or they could potentially get some type of logical access to it and make changes to it to where they uh, tilt the vote one way or the other. and to be able to be able to prove this or be able to figure it out later would be very, very difficult to do. If, you know if we thought that counting hang- hanging Chad or dimpled Chad was difficult, this would be much more difficult. But it also opens up a whole nother layer and way for people to attack the system. And we may not know or when we know it's going to be too late.
0: And just to be clear, you know, when you talk about uh, the fact that you can't tie the ballot to the voter to, you know, to to check to make sure that uh, it is the way that voter wanted to vote, that's on purpose, obviously, because we have a secret ballot system. We wouldn't want to be able to tie it back to the voter, right?
2: Yes, but but in a paper paper form, we've got something to go back to. In this case, we've got an electronic number that says, mm-hmm. you know, 14 to 2, right. or whatever the count may be. That count could have been tampered with in many different ways, and it's going to be very hard for us to tell.
0: And you're from, uh, well, your, uh, your firm, in any event, is uh, based in Houston. I mean, across Houston, across Texas. Uh, Much of the state uses these 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems, the type of electronic systems you're talking about. that are not paper based at all. Uh, Have you dealt with uh, election officials in Texas and said, hey, this is an insane way to to carry out an election?
2: We have uh, brought that up. We've brought it up uh, uh, multiple times, but that is uh, seems to be the powers that be how uh, they want to do things. And, you know, that's the scary part about this, is that sometimes we kind of choose this path of usability instead of security, and then we think, well, this is the way to do it, and then it's not until something bad happens that we actually want to change.
0: Well, and because of the way the systems are set up, there, there's a, a an election contest that's been ongoing uh, from uh, 2014. It's still ongoing down in Austin. We interviewed the... Uh, Uh, The the, uh, candidate down there who's challenging that, Laura Presley, um, she can't even get access to the system itself. She can't get access to the supposed ballot images that are supposed to be available for a recount. Uh, All of this information is proprietary. You know, even when you have a question uh, with these systems, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, and even when the evidence does exist michael she's not allowed to see that evidence
2: and and that's the that's the crazy part about this is with even with these issues such as what you've mentioned mm-hmm. we've continued to roll forward with these types of systems
0: and let me let me double down for a second to make things even worse you sort of focused on the voting machines themselves um When I talk to, uh, you know, voting system experts and uh, uh, computer uh, security experts, their concern is about the tabulator, the central tabulator that uh, uh, anyone, not just hackers, but any insider has immediate access to and about 30 seconds can change the results of an election And uh, by and large, no one will know any different, Uh, you know, again, because it's very difficult to oversee what actually happens on those systems. So with a few keystrokes, they can change uh, the results of an election. Aren't election insiders in truth even more of a threat than outside hackers to our election results?
2: Oh, certainly they are, because if you think about it, the, the way we kind of think of it, at least in the security realm, uh, whoever wants to do this stuff generally has to have three things, means, opportunity, and motive. And an insider is a much better place because an insider has the means and the opportunity to do it. All they're missing is the motive. So it could be they've got a grudge, uh, they support one candidate over the other and, and want to make sure they can win whatever it is insiders are much better place
0: to do this they're they're paid off uh, you know if somebody wants to yeah. buy them out I, I can't imagine a lot of these election clerks make a lot of money if someone comes no. across with a few million dollars And we know that uh, you know we may see we're going to see billions and billions of dollars in the presidential election alone. So, you know, there's a lot of money riding on these things. And uh, boy, if I was an election clerk, you know, making $50,000 a year and somebody came across and said, hey, man, I'll make your day. I'll give you a million dollars if you do this or that. Uh, I would hope I would not do that. But, you know, it's you know, it's mighty tempting, I suspect, for a lot of insiders and there's nothing to protect. So, I mean, there's really no way to protect against that that I know of other than oversight other than citizen oversight so how can voters uh michael Gregg, you pointed out all of these threats how can voters protect against uh these insider threats or any threats if they can't oversee their own elections what are we to do what's the solution here
2: it's very hard i think one of the one of the biggest ones is that we just continue to demand change and we continue to speak out about it to try to get the laws, the rules, the regulations changed. But the part of this that really kind of scares me to a large degree is, well, who might be doing this? This very well could be foreign interest. If foreign interest can hack in and they can get access to government systems, other type of government data, why wouldn't they potentially do this to swing one candidate, uh, you know, the vote toward one candidate or another? So if mm-hmm. they think they're going to be more open to their their line of view or what they want uh why wouldn't they do this
0: well of course and there was a, a an internet voting uh hack back in uh i think it was 2010 in washington dc it was going to be an yeah. internet election that was going live uh but the 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 good guy the white hat hackers uh, said hey let us let us test the system first uh, and in fact, they did test it. They were able to completely take over the entire system to change every vote that was cast, uh, both now and in the future. And while they were there, inside the system, they noticed that both uh, Iranian uh, ir- Iranian, and Chinese systems were also in the same system trying to hack the system. Um, so, yeah, there is uh, the threat from uh, uh, from foreigners, as you mentioned, but Fact of the matter is, if you're a Democrat, a Republican is a foreigner. If you're a Republican, a Democrat is a foreigner. Yeah. So, I mean, the threats come from anywhere. And frankly, the threat of people not being able to know if the system was hack hacked, I see that as as much of a threat as anything else. So what's but what is the solution other than in, in a perfect world, Michael Gregg? Um, what would you like to see done uh, and Before I give you my thoughts on this, I'd just like to know, how how do we do this securely and in a way that voters can know their votes have been counted and counted accurately?
2: Well, it's tough. It One, requires a lot more oversight, but then two, it really kind of focuses down to additional controls, additional controls over the devices themselves, how they operate, that they're operating securely, that they've been tested and vetted properly before they're actually placed out there. We put additional physical controls over these devices, but we also have the appropriate administrative controls. So things like lease privilege, you know, dual control, where one person can't go in there, as you said, as far as the insider, and make that change. It takes more than one person to do it. Think about it, the same types of controls you'd have in a bank. You're not going to let one person in the vault or one person count the money. You've got multiple checks that's done on that uh, all the way through. Those are just a few of the things.
0: But then we still have to trust the insiders, and we still do not know yeah. if an outsider, uh, you know, has gained access to the system, uh, you know, via manipulate a hack or something. I mean, isn't uh, aren't we talking ultimately? And I've been, you know, trying to figure this problem out, uh, Michael, for more than a decade. And and I'm a computer guy by nature, but I keep coming back to this, and I can find no system more secure, more overseeable and more difficult to game, at least game without getting caught than hand counted paper ballots counted publicly at the precinct without computers. That's correct. Take them out.
2: Yeah. That that's correct, but but the thing is everybody wants everything to be high tech, they want things to move forward and they see, you know, computers and electronic are the way to do it, but I agree with you 100%, if you have a paper-based system, it's very very hard to hard to attack. It's very much easier to be able to detect those types of things.
0: And, yeah, everybody, I don't know if they want high tech. I think uh, if they were given the choice <laughs> between high tech that you can't know is secure and a, a secure, overseeable democracy, I suspect they would take the uh, uh, paper ballots hand-counted publicly really? any time. Uh, but anyway. All right. Well, you have uh, confirmed my suspicion uh, that that there is no new system. Last question for you. No new system that is is more secure than hand counting paper ballots. But uh, last question here, Michael, uh, Greg, people are talking. They're doing this now in some cases with military and overseas votes. There are profiteers out there who really want us to move to Internet voting. Oh, boy. Do you have any confidence whatsoever that the Internet, as it currently exists, is secure enough for a secret ballot system like the one that we, uh, that we have and that these profiteers are currently pushing for?
2: No. No, I would not. Uh, that's absolute no in that case, uh, because everything that's built on as far as the Internet is basically built around usability. It's not built around security.
0: And they, the, the, the folks who support Internet voting love to say, well, why not? We, do, we p- use millions, billions of dollars a day, you know, banking online and everything else. Why is voting online so different?
2: It's not, but uh, uh, my counter to them would be in how often do we open the paper and see that somebody's been hacked, computer systems been breached, Target, uh, what Home Depot, Neiman Marcus, you know, uh, the list goes on and on. So the, the problem is, is that once it's on the Internet, by default, that is not a separate system. It cannot be totally secured.
0: It cannot be totally secured. And I would uh, disagree only on one point, which is that uh, it is different from banking, because in banking, you know, I can go back and look at my uh, records from exactly. yesterday. Uh, the credit card company can do it. The bank can do it. Everybody can do it. But when you're dealing with a secret ballot, once you drop that vote in that box, it's gone. And there's no way to check it. All right, Michael Gregg, a COO of Superior Solutions, Houston-based private IT security firm. Great talking with you about this. And I appreciate your article over at Huffington Post, Top Six Ways Hackers Could Disrupt an Election, uh, if only because it gave me all new ideas about disrupting an election that I hadn't even thought of before. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Hope to talk to you again soon. All right, we're going to take bye-bye. A, bye-bye. We're going to take a quick break and come back with more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Yes, stop, just stop, stop. stop, ice, 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 ice baby. Ice. Welcome ice. back to the Bradcast. Oh, Brad Friedman oh, from stop. bradblog.com. Oh, uh, I've been wanting to get to this for a while. Uh, my Twitter uh, handle is the TheBradBlog. So you can, uh, you can uh, troll me there all you like. Uh, nice things, bad things, whatever you want. I'd love to hear from you. Seems like I get a lot of trolls lately, particularly whenever I talk about global warming. And so uh, I heard from uh, one of my favorite and funniest trolls the other day on the twitters. He goes by the name of Vern, uh, and he sends only a link, as if that is evidence of something. He sends only a link to this article at this place called Armstrong Economics. Desi, have you heard of this? Uh, no, place? no, a guy I by the name of Martin Armstrong, uh, and it's a, uh, it's an incisive. One paragraph article with the headline sea ice in Arctic sea expanded. By 33% as Earth turns colder. You didn't report that on the uh, Green News Report, did you, Desi Doyen? No,
1: no, I I did not. Well, here's the
0: entirety (laughs) of this uh, article that uh, he points to, this article I put in quotes because it's one paragraph. Uh, The BBC has reported that the sheer volume of Arctic sea ice increased significantly by about 33%. After an unusually cool summer unfolded in 2013, researchers confirmed that the same pattern of sea ice expansion has taken place again in 2014. The BBC reports that the scientists involved believe changes in summer temperatures have a greater impact on ice than previously thought. This is part of the long-term cycle. It is going to get cold. This is what Martin Armstrong uh, writes here. It is going to get colder in the years ahead. And there will be more volatility. Those who continue to believe in global warming do so because that is what they want to believe. It's a message to you, Desi. You cannot, and he goes on, last sentence, you cannot accept cycles in everything else, including markets, but deny that they exist in nature. Okie dokie. You're not impressed?
1: No. There's nothing to that article whatsoever. (laughs) And in fact, if you go to the study itself... I'll wager that the scientist didn't actually say what he says. Well, they say. as
0: and I will go to the article itself in one moment here, but I just want to point out, I don't believe anybody is accepting that there is not cycles
1: right. in Straw-Man. nature.
0: Uh, there are cycles, of course, in nature. And uh, yes, the Earth gets warmer and colder and so forth over time for various reasons. But there's always a reason. And by the way those natural reasons tends uh, tend to take uh, hundreds and thousands of years to occur. They don't occur in decades as we are seeing now. But in any case, uh, this guy, Martin Armstrong, was kind enough, as uh, most of these people are not, he was kind enough at least to link to the BBC article that he was citing in his uh, argument that uh, sea arctic ice is expanding and the earth is turning colder. So I clicked over to the BBC And I find that the first three sentences of the BBC article are exactly what Martin Armstrong plagiarized in his uh, one paragraph piece here. He didn't actually quote that he was taking exactly from them when uh, the volume of sea ice has increased uh, and that it will continue to increase in 2014 and so forth. So he, he put the first three sentences, but he didn't put the fourth sentence from the BBC article, which is, But they say 2013 was a one-off and that climate change will continue to shrink the ice in the decades ahead. The Arctic region has warmed more than most other parts of the planet over the past 30 years. Satellite observations have documented a decrease, a decrease of around 40% in the extent of sea ice cover in the Arctic since 1980. So in other words, That 33 uh, percent expansion he was talking about, that was a 33 percent expansion over the previous year when it was at a 40 year low or when it actually had uh, since 1980s, when it had decreased 40 percent. The BBC article goes on to say that the researchers used 88 million measurements of sea ice thickness from uh, the Cryosat satellite satellite and found that between 2010 and 2012, the volume of sea ice went down by 40, uh, I'm sorry, 14%. Relative to the average of the period between 2010 and 2012, the scientists found that there was a 33% increase in sea ice volume in 2013. So in other words, uh, no, sea ice is not expanding. The earth is not turning colder. The article is complete and utter nonsense. The one uh, the one paragraph article that the guy used to uh, to push over uh, people over to BBC, as was the link that my troll sent me on Twitter. Yes, I do look into these things and I do bother to read the actual sources that they came from, not just some jackass's interpretation of them. By the way, the very last line of the BBC article uh, quotes one of the scientists whose uh, reporting is uh, covered here. And the quote is the long term trend of the ice volume is downwards and the long term trend of the temperatures in the Arctic is upwards. And this finding doesn't give us any reason to disbelieve that as far as we can tell, it's just one anomalous year. For some reason, that part didn't make it into the deep, deep trollage. Doesn't matter. The right-wingers and the uh, deniers out there who want to disbelieve it will continue to disbelieve it because they are the most incurious jackasses on the face of the earth. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, To our guest today, Michael Gregg of Superior Solutions. You can get more information about his organization over at thesolutionfirm.com. If you missed any portion of the program today, you can always download it at bradblog.com. You can and should follow and troll me all you like on the Twitters at thebradblog, or you can do it old school. My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll see you soon. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.